0: This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network.
1: Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I'm Joe Lipset, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Terry Menard. Hi, Terry. Oh,
0: uh, this isn't Terry, this is actually my twin Carrie
1: oh hi carrie how is uh how is your life with you and terry going
0: it's getting a little uh confusing to be honest
1: Mm. (laughs) can
0: never tell which one of us is which
1: (laughs) yes that could be problematic also the fact that you're imbibing in too much alcohol too much drugs
0: yeah just getting quite the cocktail
1: going indeed yeah so folks if you have not looked at the title of the episode (laughs) then you would not understand that terry is making a joke about the fact that we are talking about david cronenberg's 1988 film dead ringers
0: yeah and this is um this is a weird one for me because i have actually seen the i mean i know you've seen it as well but i've actually seen the remake before seeing the original movie that the Mm -hmm. remake was based on and so uh That was a weird experience.
1: Yeah, because when you watch the film, you realize they were pretty reverent when it came to the Amazon TV show, which of course came out in January of 2023, uh, features Rachel Weiss in the dual Jeremy Irons roles. And I actually like both texts, but I do think that it plays very different when you got a woman as the central lead compared to a man
0: yeah i I think that's what surprised me because, as I was watching the series without i mean i I literally knew nothing about dead ringers except that it was about twins mm-hmm. and that they were gynecologists like that is all I knew, and I don't even know if I knew that they were gynecologists, I think I knew they were doctors, so like right. that is literally all I really knew about the source text so when I'm watching the uh Rachel Weiss, who does a phenomenal job in it oh, by the so way so good she's so good. But as I was watching it, I was going, I am curious to see what the source material looked like, because this is um, wild. It Mm -hmm. definitely was like pulling from Cronenbergian things. I do think the remake sort of adds another layer of dream-like feel to it, where you're not quite sure if the other twin is actually alive or not for some Mm -hmm. parts of it. So it does some interesting things with that, but I was surprised to see that the basic narrative plot thread is pretty similar and is definitely very faithful to to the the, the core text which i was very surprised to see
1: mm-hmm. and of course we should note that uh the film is actually not the source so this is based on a uh, book true. by barry wood as well as jack Geesland. and i've never read the book but i have read another one by barry wood uh an interesting writer but I don't know how much of this ends up coming from that book source material and how much has been written by Cronenberg. He also co-writes the script with Norman Snyder.
0: Yeah. And, and also the fact that the book is, you know, based on a real life pair Mm. of twin gynecologists, um, Stuart and and Cyril, Cyril, Marcus, who died together under... um, Suspicious circumstances. (laughs) Yeah barbiturate yeah. overdose is what mm-hmm. is one of them and then the other one potentially a sedative withdrawal so when I started watching the movie I saw that it was based on the book and so I was like well when this is once I'm done watching the movie I want to go look and see what the book was about and then finding mm-hmm. out that that was based on real life in uh case and then seeing sort of how at least in the the wikipedia biography of, of the twins dead ringers really does kind of feel like it is taking their sort of maybe end of life aspect pretty closely, in a way in a weird way. So that's I thought that was really interesting. I am curious to see if the book is different than than Dead Ringers, the movie, though.
1: Yeah, so this is a twins narrative. And of course, we're spending a fairly substantial portion of the time establishing the relationship between Beverly and Elliot and what makes them different, even though they are identical twins. And then we sort of move into Elliot being the more outgoing one. He ends up, I want to say, gently manipulating and even abusing his twin brother, who is clearly the more talented Practitioner when it comes to gynecology. So I think Beverly does a lot more of the actual surgeries and the kind of innovative radical techniques, whereas Elliot is much more of the salesman, the showman. And I really like how the movie and the TV show establish that relationship and then moves into the sort of back half where things just get really dark and really grim as Beverly begins to spiral. And it all comes about this relationship that they have with a woman. So I guess that was my long-winded way of introducing a question I've been dying to ask you, Terry. Because when we talked about The Fly, you said it was one of your favorite Cronenberg films because it had this romantic element. And we both praised the Gina Davis role as being the most thoroughly developed female character to date in Cronenberg's films. So how did you feel about Claire, played by Genevieve Bujold?
0: So I'm glad that you brought that up, because when I first started watching the movie, and we're sort of, we're with the twins, we're kind of setting ourselves in their perspective, at least initially. And so we're seeing the way in which they look at women, almost Mm -hmm. as objects, I would say, as something to like, to study, to the idea of like a mutant comes up at, at, at specific points in a very disparaging yep. sort of way. So the way that they look at, at women, particularly Elliot, I would say is very misogynistic. And so yep. as we were getting introduced to Claire, initially I was like a little put off by it because of how she's talking about, you know, wanting to be humiliated, wanting mm-hmm. to, she makes like some comment and I'm trying to find where I wrote it down, but there was basically some, comment about how if she's not able to have a baby then she's not a woman that she's still a girl and she's saying that and so i'm like sitting here going "Ooh, okay we have gone from (laughs) the fly in which i do think it was one of his best written female characters to hear where this character does not seem very strong and so i was Hmm. like what is this going to do but as I was watching the movie and we started to get more perspective from her, it almost felt as if the movie was sort of introducing us to her through their perspective initially. Right. And then there's a point where we're looking at them through her perspective. And so we're mm-hmm. more in her shoes. And so I was like much more appreciative of it. And I do think that while I do think that while the character in the fly is probably a, a better written female character, cause we get to spend more time with her. Mm-hmm. I did ultimately like Claire and the way that she kind of, gets more power in the relationship and then becomes a much more interesting character to watch right
1: yeah i appreciate the fact that you said it does seem like we're seeing her through the twins eyes and that maybe does inform it i'm not going to lie the gender politics of this in terms of like what makes a woman a woman and it's all about having babies and having the right anatomical that kind of stuff it's just it's the very 1988 of it you know we're looking at this nearly 35 years later and it doesn't sit well because of course we look at what makes a woman in a very different lens now like this could be read as almost anti-trans but of course at the time that's not the way it was meant to be taken it's It was more about who this woman is as a very successful actress you know she's at the top of her game but also the thing she wants to do is have a baby that's what she associates as her primary focus as a woman so i think it's important to distinguish this is one character's perspective on what she's trying to achieve through a gendered lens but I do think that she becomes more strong and more interesting as the film progresses, even though she's absent for a large portion of the back half of the film. But particularly in the two scenes where she interacts with Elliot and knows that it's Elliot.
0: Yes, I loved oh I loved the sequence at the at the dinner table at the mm-hmm. there at a restaurant, but basically at a yes. at a dinner table at a restaurant, and she has realized Because like before this, before this moment, she is talking to who she thinks is Beverly and it might be Beverly at that point. I honestly, I could not tell sometimes initially. You're meant
1: to confuse it. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Uh, But she was talking about how she sees him as being, she uses the word schizophrenic, but basically that his behavior with her is sort of different depending on the day. And it's really throwing her for a loop. And then Mm -hmm. she finds out that they're twins and she knows instantly what the hell is going on. And I loved that moment. (laughs) I also loved kind of – I wanted to kind of put a little another point in the whole motherhood aspect of it because while it does hurt her once she realizes that she can't have kids, it -hmm. doesn't become a defining moment for her throughout the rest of the movie. She's not pining over the fact that she can't have kids. She's just like, well – I guess I'm not going to have kids. And then she mm-hmm. focuses back on her career. And so I thought that that was a very important distinction, because I was afraid that it was going to become one of those things of like, oh, I can't have a kid, I can't be a quote, unquote, real woman, that kind yeah. of thing, you know, and it that doesn't happen.
1: No, no. And she acknowledges even when she gets the bad news that It's kind of what she expected because she had been to see other people. It's just that when she finally got this consultation with the world-famous Mantle Twins, she thought that maybe they were going to be able to do something that other doctors hadn't seen in her. So I think if nothing else, this is a confirmation for her. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of like, okay, one door has shut and now I need to go explore what the other doors offer.
0: Yeah, exactly. But going back to your 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 point initially, yes, I did love that sequence where she is basically calling them both on their Mm -hmm. bullshit and just being like, you got to be honest with me. And then seeing the way the two would react to her, where Elliot was, of course, being very disparaging and, you know, basically (laughs) the comment about like, you know, you weren't very good. So I gave you to my brother, like just horrible things, just very so disgusting. But seeing their personalities of that and then Bev trying to basically be the the intermediary between the two of them, because I think he realizes that he needs to have both of them in his life. Yes. It was a very interesting dynamic for that, that meeting.
1: Mm-hmm. I also think it's fascinating that at the end of it, when she leaves in a huff, It's not Elliot that she throws the water on, it's Beverly, which is the one that she's had the stronger connection to, the one who has actively fallen in love with her and realizes that he needs her. And I always think it's so fascinating that she ends up throwing water on a real emotional relationship as opposed to the guy who just cast her aside.
0: Well, and I also think at that moment she realizes what kind of person Elliot is, and so Mm -hmm. she's more disappointed in Beverly for going yes. along with it than Elliot mm-hmm. because of that emotional connection. And I, I did think that was such a good moment, such a, a choice character moment that I
1: loved. hmm And then it comes, well, maybe not full circle, but it definitely pays off when... After this moment, Beverly will begin experimenting with drugs. He ends up becoming a drug addict. And even when she comes back and their relationship resumes, you know, he's taking uppers to wake up, he's taking downers to go to bed. Like he's just on a roller coaster cocktail. And Elliot goes to see her in her trailer when she's on set doing reshoots for the role that initially brought her to Toronto. And I love this conversation where they're both trying to be civil, but their guard is up because neither one of them likes the other, but they're trying to make it work for Beverly's sake. But even just maybe it's obvious, but it gets me every time I watch this movie, we're shooting her from her right side. And then at one point, she turns and we see that the left side of her face is basically all busted up from makeup because she's playing, I'm assuming, some kind of battered woman. But it's so telltale about the narrative that we're watching, right? Like, it's a split face down the middle. One side is one way. One side is the other way. It's very Yanis And yet... I don't know, like this kind of stuff just really works for me, especially when you know what's going on behind the scenes to duplicate Jeremy Irons for this dual performance.
0: Yes, and I, I'm glad you bring up that scene as well because what I really enjoyed was the the kind of linguistic... Uh,
1: it's like a gameplay, right?
0: Yes, between... Because right before that, when Elliot goes to set... He he makes the comment that Bev's not into art, but he's into glamour, the mm-hmm. art of glamour, which, of course, is, you know, you think about glamorous, you think about actors, you think about that. But glamour is also like the idea of presenting something as something else. Mm-hmm. And so we have this idea. So you think about glamours in terms of like ma- magicians. Their art sometimes is called glamour, where they're making you see something that's not really happening. And so the fact that we have this little bit of wordplay in here, like really made me giddy because Mm -hmm. it is basically saying two different things at the same time where he enjoys the art of fooling other people. Because he makes the comments about like, you know, how he'll go present for Beverly while Beverly's working or vice versa, because he knows that no one can tell that he's the other The other twin. Mm -hmm. And so I just love that, that we just insert that in there. And it's not, there's no attention brought to it. It's just a word choice. But for those that understand what the meaning of glamour can be, the dual meaning, or maybe multiple meanings of glamour, Mm -hmm. it just, (laughs) it's so good.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's really telling how smart this screenplay is like in some ways this is a fairly traditional tragedy right it's about Mm -hmm. two inseparable brothers who start a journey together and then the woman who comes between them and causes their downfall again you could actually read this as gently misogynistic and yet i don't think the film presents it that way at all it's about the hubris of these men right they are world famous gynecologists they literally invent new tools And yet, the minute that you introduce any kind of emotional conflict into their lives, which just happens to take the form of Claire, they just absolutely spiral. And in some ways, I think it's so clever. It is obvious. Like, once Beverly starts experimenting with drugs, there is no coming back from this. And the film gets really heavy and really dark at points. And yet, there's something... I don't know. Like, I find it very emotionally cathartic and even up to the point where you know it's not going to end well for these two men but there's something satisfying and sad and just really emotionally resonant about the way the film concludes
0: i agree with that and i was as i was watching this i kept thinking about because you know again we're going through tired filmography of of these two directors and so mm-hmm. one of the the things that i've enjoyed seeing is the way in which the work kind of inf- has been informed by the previous films that they've done right and here we have this this case where i mean when you look at it, this is a traditional Cronenberg narrative where it's like there's male doctors who are performing mm-hmm. stuff or male scientists or male people in that field are performing things on other people and eventually their work catches up with them. It's right. kind of how it is. But a lot of times the, our perspective has been in with the victims of what these doctors or scientists are doing, you know, mm-hmm. the brood or rabid or even shivers, you know, we're following other people. The doctors are there. They're antagonist in some ways but a lot of it is focused on the victims whereas here and to a to a degree i would say the fly we're more in the headspace of of the doctors that are doing the kind of horrible things and so they you know i don't i don't know because like there is some kind of aspect to it where they are doing good things obviously but there becomes a point where it's like no what you are doing is Mm -hmm. um horrible and so to see to see it from their perspective I think is an interesting dynamic that this film introduces more so than any of his previous ones with maybe the exception being The Fly. So I I think, I I don't know. I just, I find it so fascinating that we are with these doctors and we are seeing their downfall from their perspective as opposed to previous ones where it's from maybe the victim's perspective.
1: Well, and it also feels a lot more humanistic, right? I mean, you could argue that this film doesn't really have the kind of cronenberg body horror touch that we become accustomed to and i would quibble with that because i think just <laughs> seeing the gynecological instruments laid out for mutant women is horrifying and then when you find out that beverly used one of those on a woman <laughs> is horrifying
0: yes and and you you start to think about how like you look at those and it's basically like hr geiger designs oh yes
1: yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fun fact, of course, is that Cronenberg uh, actually based them off of sculptures that he actually made himself. So, <laughs> in some ways, what? once again, this is semi-autobiographical, of course. <laughs> but, but yes. So, I will. I will also quibble
0: with the idea of this not of there not being body horror because I do think that while it doesn't show a lot of the horror, mm-hmm. we are there to see either like the aftermath or to see like what is happening but then there's also that that dream where
1: <laughs>
0: there's like a weird threesome almost about to happen between the twin brothers and yeah and claire and he's like i don't want this and so she leans over and tears at their i don't it's know it's like a
1: connective tissue like they're connected yeah. in the womb or something
0: it, yeah it almost had like a, a mute a mutated like umbilical mm-hmm. cord feel to it and which makes sense for the the two characters uh but yeah. So we have that that moment. But then we also have you mentioned the, the the sequence where Beverly is using one of these devices inappropriately on this woman. And we don't see anything, thankfully, because I did not want to see that. No. But like we see her discomfort. We, we hear it. We hear the pain. We see him like forcing this in. Mm-hmm. And that is pure body horror, whether we see it or not.
1: Absolutely. And let's not forget, like, there's a heavily gendered element to this, because we're talking about male gynecologists who are working with primarily female patients. You know, there's even a whole exchange with an adamant woman who wants to have a baby. But the problem is that her husband and Beverly just keeps saying, we don't do men, we don't work with men, we only work with women. So I love that there's that element. But really, the movie... As concerned as it is with the gender politics or the relationships between men and women, so much of this is about how men bring about their own downfall. And in some ways, this is almost the most grounded story that Cronenberg has told since he really started doing feature films. Like, this is about two men who get into a drug spiral, and it ends up ultimately costing them their lives. And there's something not deeply relatable about this but it does feel like Cronenberg saying sure I'm still going to give you some of that trademark body horror stuff but I'm not relying on it to tell a similar kind of story to what I've told in the past
0: I I think that's what surprised me the most when I sat down to watch this because I mean again I had seen the remake and I was like I can definitely see the Cronenbergian feel of this of this Mm -hmm. miniseries but it's not what when i when I sat down to watch the movie, it's not what I really expected because we have so much of i mean we've gone from videodrome and the fly and the brood and all these things that have a lot more fantiness right? to them yeah. yes the the idea not supernatural but like basically the kind of weird body imagery that we have seen and aside from the dream, we don't really get that in here, mm-hmm. so I was really surprised as I was watching this, I was like, wow, this is actually more of um I mean a psychological thriller for sure but like right. tied into the a more dramatic feel to it as opposed to something more fantastical mm-hmm. so I, I actually was surprised about that and yet I like what you said this definitely is his most grounded uh, movie and it definitely feels as if he is trying to find a way to go forward with something maybe more uh,
1: mainstream but also not at the same
0: time does that mm-hmm. make sense
1: yeah yeah I mean, it's interesting because this was hugely challenging, not just from a technical standpoint in order to get all of the split stuff working with Jeremy Irons. like Folks, if you have access to the Criterion disc of this, I would highly recommend watching the special features on it because it was a huge fucking production to get the split screens working with jeremy irons because this is not cgi we did not have that capability so we were doing things with like erasing from mats we were using body doubles jeremy irons had to give the same performance like a billion times on either side uh we were doing like instant replay stuff just so that they could match up to make sure that his uh conversations and his body movements worked in tandem just like a huge technical undertaking But then you set that aside and apparently just the subject matter alone was hugely challenging. Like Cronenberg says that he shopped this to 30 different actors from Canada and the US and everybody basically stopped reading. When you get to the first scene with Beverly and Elliot as adults, where it's just Beverly giving a gynecological exam on a woman, people were like, no, absolutely not that can't be the first scene and also i'm put off by this character like why can't they be lawyers and Cronenberg was like okay like he really didn't anticipate people were going to have such reservations about the fact that these are gynecologists
0: yeah i was i was surprised when i i guess not really surprised to see that but i was a little surprised I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know what
1: to say exactly, but I, I was like, I was not surprised. <laughs> was to disappointed, say- to be honest. I was like, really? People <laughs> had that stronger reaction about men who look at women's bodies. Like, it just it feels incredibly timely and unfortunately very relevant about the way that we continue to just have distaste and distrust, and we're very concerned about women's bodies. It's like, ooh, no, I don't want to see that. That's distasteful. <laughs> it's like, uh, that's fifty-one percent of the fucking population.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess that maybe that that's a better way of, of stating it, because I was not surprised to hear that Robert De Niro turned it down, mm-hmm. supposedly because of the per- portraying gynecologist, a male gynecologist. That did not surprise me <laughs> one bit, considering the, the time that this was coming out, and mm-hmm. the, the fact that, yes, we do not want to consider what is going on with, with a person's uterus. We don't want to yeah. talk about that. Like That is that is sort of like a verboten discussion, it seems like, to this day, which is... Mm-hmm. really frustrating and misogynistic but yeah. so i guess it didn't really surprise me that people turned it down considering that time frame but then also it does kind of disappoint me that said i am really glad that these people turn it down because Jeremy jeremy irons gives in a fantastic performance <sighs> here
1: it is immaculate i've seen this film probably four or five times now I think this was actually one of the earliest Cronenbergs that I watched. Like, the first one I watched okay. was Crash, which will come up on in a couple of films. But, uh, yeah, this was one of the first ones that I ended up seeking out after that. And I didn't really know what to expect. I've always had this weird relationship with Jeremy Irons where there's something about the coolness of his delivery. He seems... Uncomfortably sexual to me. Like, I get a, mm. a grody European pervert vibe from him. And I think it's just because I've seen him in a lot of daring sexual films, kind of like this. And I think in some ways that makes him a very fascinating actor. Like, he's clearly very comfortable with films that do deconstruct human sexuality. And as an adult, I've actually really come to appreciate that from his performances and his film choices. But he is so sensational here. Like, just like Rachel Weiss, it's not at all hard to distinguish between Beverly and Elliot, except when the film is deliberately trying to confuse you.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I, that is a very good point, because when they're together, they have such a, a, you can definitely tell who is talking and which one is which. But at the moments when they are presenting their, their outward focused persona to the world Mm -hmm. it's really sometimes difficult from from determining who is the person that is being called beverly giving a speech on the stage or is this really beverly with claire at these particular moments Mm i i love the this the sort of well the glamour behind it right Mm -hmm. i i love that i love that that twist because you're right when they are together it's pretty easy to tell based on their personalities, which one is talking. And I just, I don't know, it it really impressed me with his performance with that. But I also wanted to kind of go back when you were talking about the technicality uh, or the technical prowess behind trying to get them together in one scene. Yeah, there is the one scene earlier on in the movie where they are walking and one is behind the other. And so Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, this is really seamless, but I I just assumed that there was like a screen behind him and he was, you know, walking like they were doing that. But then the one brother ends up walking side by side with him and even getting a little bit ahead of him. Mm -hmm. And I was so surprised at at how they they managed to establish that without you're right, CG or any of that kind of film trickery, film visual effects. But that moment I was like, wow. I was surprised at the magic and the again, the glamour of trying to pull this off.
1: Yeah, so the way that Cronenberg described it, they had two different people. One who was kind of an approximate height for Jeremy Irons that they would use as a, a physical stand-in so that they could make the eyeline matches. And then they had someone who apparently wasn't quite the same physical look as Irons, but he was in sync with Jeremy Irons' acting style. So he was the okay. person who would kind of run either the Beverly or the Elliot to irons whichever twin he was playing at the time and then they would capture that on like an instant replay and that would allow them to watch it so that when they were filming the other half of the scene with jeremy irons swapping rules they could match it up and you know obviously he was taking note of okay i did this when i was playing the other character so he knew how to react but Like, just watching it, it seems like such a fucking ordeal. Apparently, Jeremy Irons is on record as being like, it actually wasn't that different from doing a regular role or playing two characters in a single film because so often there are a lot of shots of just him, like one twin is on screen reacting to what the other twin is doing. And he said, oh, well, that was just like every other time you play to the camera because there is no one else on the other side. You're looking into a room full of people who are filming you but it was it was a lot of work and for this to still look so seamless like this is 35 years ago
0: (laughs) i know joe i've seen i've seen like shows that have done twins for instance like orphan black or whatever and they are not as seamless as this Mm -mm. as this movie was that was made back in the 80s and i was Just watching this without very much, um, I would say, like practical effects. I mean, we have the one dream sequence, but that aside, watching this made me appreciate filmmaking so much. I was like, this is magic. Watching this happen right here Mm -hmm. is pure magic. And it reminded me why I love films so much. Yeah, yeah
1: one could argue that aside from the technical aspects of doubling irons this is a relatively low-key film right like Mm -hmm. it's not until i was actually listening to the first part of the audio commentary it's a bit of a shame they've got about six different people on this audio commentary And I really just want to only hear David (laughs) Cronenberg because he's so insightful and they keep breaking from him to let other people have bits and pieces. And I'm sure that's great. But I just I found it very distracting as an audio commentary. But I didn't realize until after the fact that the scene with the twin brothers walking down their neighborhood in 1954. So the opening scene of the film, that's one of the only times we go outside. So every other moment, I think there's one other scene where either Beverly or Elliot like runs out of the building and then just goes right back in. But almost every frame of this movie is indoors so we're actually able to control the environment to the nth degree which i think also helps i didn't even realize that i know right because it, it doesn't feel like a play or that the movie is being contained or something like that you know if anything i think it has this air of claustrophobia and paranoia and you realize so much of that is thanks to carol spears set design like i love the mantle house which apparently was fashioned using the lighting scheme and also the decorating scheme of a submarine that's what cronenberg said for their apartment he was like i want it to look like an aquarium so that you're looking at exotic fish (laughs) i was like
0: yeah mission fucking accomplished mission accomplished man wow i i had no idea uh i want to i want to listen to the audio commentary because i i was blown away with this movie i was i don't i don't know what i was expecting but what i got was not what i was expecting at all and i love that (laughs)
1: Mm. so let's talk about one of the most indelible images in this entire movie we talked about the instruments for mutant women so fucking upsetting but terry what did you think when you finally got to see the iconic red scrubs designed by cronenberg's sister denise who does the costumes for the film what did you think when you got to see them in action
0: uh i loved it i loved the imagery so much. And there was this moment. Um, It was the second time we, I think it was the second time that we see them in the getup. Mm-hmm. And it almost has like a religious feel to it. Yes. Where like yes. he is, he is standing there and his arms are out mm-hmm. to his side, almost as if he is like Christ on a cross. Yeah, And he is having, he's, he looks like he's a little blitzed out of his mind from, oh. from drugs mm-hmm. at this point, but he is sitting there in, in sort of like a stupor as they are buttoning in, in front of him. And it is, it's is like, a priest getting up on stage to get all dressed up in the the ceremonial garb to give out his benediction to his his wilting audience, and that is what this this whole thing felt like. This this religious feel of these people all—you can't see anything about them. All of their body is pretty much you know covered, minus their glasses on their face or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it, it gives this definite ceremonial ritualistic feel yes. to it of. of religifying religifying sure it's <laughs> not a word but i'm going to use it religifying the mm-hmm. aspect of science and i i don't know it just it felt so perfect for for what we've seen from cronenberg and it felt so audacious at the same time
1: yeah the more i think about it the more it almost reminds me of a kind of hammer horror vibe as well yeah. like It does feel ceremonial. It does feel religious. You know, it feels vaguely satanic. Of course, Mm. we're in an operating room and they're wearing bright red scrubs too. So it's a chilling effect, particularly when you know that these men are on the descent because of how... basically how drugged up they are at this point in the movie. So when you see it the first time, you think, oh, that's wild. That's ostentatious. You know, like these men think that they are gods. And then when you see it again, you think... Oh, God, it feels like horrible foreshadowing that some disaster is going to happen to the point where when it goes bad, I'm always surprised it isn't worse. You know, we nick a woman, but it seems like we maybe catch it in time because they recognize that Beverly is fucked out of his mind. But it feels like it could have gone so much worse.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was I was prepared for something a lot worse than than what we got. And I was I was thankful that they didn't go in that in that route because that was uh de- that's a definite tipping point in in their um downfall for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think the other thing that kind of and I I want to watch this movie again because I I'm not sure if I'm just now thinking about this or if it's true, but the rest of the movie feels a little muted in color and so when we get to these right. these moments of bright red, it pops a lot more. Then if the movie were as more colorful, we probably wouldn't notice it as as hugely much. We'd think it's really odd. But the fact that the rest of the movie, to me, from what I remember watching it, is a little bit more muted in in terms of the color choices. So when we get to these operating moments, it is so bright and so red. It just pops so well.
1: Yeah, I mean, overall, the film is actually quite muted in terms of its color scheme. Uh, it's a lot of blues. It's a lot of grays. Yeah. Apparently, the other instruction that Spears was given by Cronenberg was think of the color scheme of bruising. So it's a lot oh. of mustard yellows. It's uh, rotting greens and then purples and blues and grays.
0: OK, Yep, yeah, that makes sense.
1: <laughs> mm hmm but you're right it does feel like particularly when we move into that last act and we're basically holed up in the apartment or the clinic and the garbage is accumulating and it you just you can imagine the smell you can like it's really visually decadent in Mm. an abhorrent kind of way and i love that again this feels mental not Oh, okay. I'm bored. I want something new and exciting to happen. Like, I'm not waiting for a big climax. It would have been so easy to have had the men arrested, to have had a fight break out over the woman or something like that. And instead, it just feels like a sad, pathetic descent into depravity. And there's only one outcome, and it's that both twins have to die.
0: Well, okay. So, I I do want to talk a little bit about. There is a moment in here that I I laughed and I gasped at the same time. And it Ooh. was it was when Beverly calls Claire as she is off working and we are with her in her <laughs> hotel room and we see her assistant who is flamboyantly gay. Well, and I love that <laughs> later on she calls him defiantly gay. I was like right. that. That is what I want to be. I want to be defiantly gay like that. Mm -hmm. The way she said that was like, yes, I can see that. But yes, he is obviously he is obviously gay. And so when we get to see that perspective and then see how much it sends Beverly reeling because Mm -hmm. he calls her and gets a man on the phone and
1: just assumes that she's fucking this man just because it's a man who picks up the phone in her hotel room as though she's not a world famous actor who would be surrounded by assistants.
0: exactly exactly so just the way that it sends him basically on this downward spiral like that Mm -hmm. is the moment where where it is like everything is is crumbling is because he assumes that she is cheating on him which i find so fascinating because of course the two of them have been cheating with with her, you know, right? Like he's mm-hmm. having sex with her. His brother's had sex with her, like without, without her knowledge of the, of the two having sex with her. So like we have that. And yet this is the moment that sends him spiraling. And he says kind of the most, what he thinks is the most hurtful things about how he is basically calling her anatomy, a mutant. Yeah. And the, the comment, this means you've been fucking a mutant is so oh.
1: vicious. Yeah. And horrible. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um... I think it's a bit of truth-telling. You know, what people say when they're feeling wounded, when they're feeling threatened, to me, is often very revealing. And, again, we have to note that Beverly is absolutely drugged out of his mind at this point. So he is not Mm -mm. incredibly rational. He's not behaving normally. And yet, the fact that he is willing to say this to someone that he has never met. He doesn't actually even know who this person is. He just default assumes, oh, you're fucking my girlfriend. And then he just goes on this litany of horrific things. And you're just like, oh, Beverly... You are not the nice guy that we thought you were. And here's the thing. The movie has repeatedly told us that neither one of these men are actually very good. They're fantastic scientists, and they're kind of terrible people. Like that opening scene in 1954 when they are young boys, and they basically, not sexually accost, but they proposition this girl because they don't treat her like a human being. They treat her as an anatomical specimen. And that's all that Claire actually is at the end of the day, even though Beverly realizes, oh, I am in love with her. When push comes to shove and he feels threatened, he resorts to calling her a mutant woman.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad you bring up the initial the initial scene that we get in in 1954, because I, I think that scene is so informs the rest of the movie so incredibly mm. well because we mm-hmm. have two, these two boys talking about a subject that they don't understand. Nope. Yet they think that they do understand it. Yep. And the, we have one of them saying that, you know, if if we lived in water, then we wouldn't have sex the way we do. Mm-hmm. And he says, the kind where you wouldn't have to touch each other. And the other one says, I like that idea. And so we already have this like sort of distance of, of us being on a different level than everyone else, where they're like, I don't want to touch them. I don't want to have sex with them, but I want to understand sex. And so we have this in them and they make the comment. One of them makes the comment at the very end. They're so different from us and all because we don't live underwater. And it's such a, a loaded statement because you could be you could continue that with what they are talking about earlier about us and fish and, or us and marine life,
1: mm-hmm. but they're
0: not. They're talking about the fact that Rafaela, this little girl, <laughs>
1: basically tells
0: him <laughs> to fuck off because they're being a creep to her. Yep. And so that is where we start from here. And I started thinking about this again, as you were mentioning the the idea that we were looking at them as sort of like through an aquarium, that that's what Cronenberg wanted us to look at,
1: mm-hmm. as if they
0: themselves are exotic fish. And so it's interesting to me that that is how we start. And that is the design that Cronenberg wanted us to be looking at these two people as, as if they're fish in an aquarium. So fantastic.
1: Yeah. So there's one other element about their relationship that I do want to bring up because... I've covered this movie with Trace on horror queers because I do think that there's something inherently queer about the relationship between the twins, you know? It's not just that they're willing to step into each other's roles to share experiences, which include sex with women and impersonating each other so that they can do so, but even, you know, that surreal nightmare sequence that you described earlier where they're actually conjoined and then... I think that there's an interesting conversation to be had about the moment that Beverly first freaks out on Claire when she asks him about the female connotations of his name.
0: Yes, I'm I'm glad you brought this up because I I definitely wanted to talk about it. There are discrete moments in this movie where it is suggesting that, I mean, I think you could look at it two different ways. There Mm -hmm. is definitely a queer reading for this that I am on board for 100%. You could also look at it on a more clinical level where we have the image of these conjoined twins. We have this idea where they don't feel complete. They Mm -hmm. feel whether they are physically attached to each other or not, that they are one person. And so you could look at it that way. However, the fact that we have this moment where she is asking him about his more feminine name and his immediate thing is what, do you think I'm gay? Like he is Mm -hmm. immediately pushing it back against that idea or that his parents, his mom wanted to have daughters. And so that's why they're named, you know, Beverly and Elliot. That moment right there was my first like, oh, there is something here that Mm -hmm. that I think the film wants to explore. And then I do think throughout a few moments, the movie does continue along that line of of discussion.
1: Yeah, it feeds back into your first reading, which is, you know, that they are... Two individuals and really one person. This Mm -hmm. idea that there is a masculine and feminine side to it, Elliot and Beverly, but Beverly is coded female in some ways because he is more emotional. He's more apt to love. He's not as masculine- toxically so, like Elliot. So I think that right. there's one sort of, oh, yin and yang, men and women go together, they form one when they come together kind of reading. But then, yeah, I think inherently there's a queerness to this where... They are so comfortable with each other. Like, even when they do their faux birthday drug celebration, they're hanging out in their underwear together. Like, the whole end of the movie is them operating on each other, like, putting their hands into each other and so on. So, I don't know. I, I find it incredibly complicated and oh, yeah. very daring in a lot of ways. And yet I think for a lot of people, this is a fairly simplistic movie, which I just I find that fascinating.
0: I I do as well, because also we do have that that really thematically fantastic moment when Elliot is I think he's out of town uh, presenting somewhere
1: mm-hmm. and he
0: hires a pair of twins from an escort yes. agency and he plays it as if like, he wants to know which one of them is which, and so he tells one of them to call him Ellie and the other to call him Bev. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, A, we have him using feminine versions, like kind of Ellie is, is traditionally yes. considered to be a more feminine name, and Bev is, is as well. And so we have these two names that he wants them to call, but he wants them to be calling him both. He wants to imagine in a way that he is having sex with them and his brother is yes. one way of taking a look at this. And I do think that that continues on, particularly when once, once we get to Elliot's sort of on and off fling that he has with this red headed woman. Um, yes. What is her name? Her name Carrie, is Carrie. I think. Yes. So we have that moment where Beverly is laying on the couch and Elliot has, is, is dancing with, mm. with Carrie. And then they are all three dancing together and, Yeah,
1: and Elliot is trying to move this to the bedroom, baby.
0: He sure is. And when he has his hand on on Carrie's hand and he is moving her Mm -hmm. hand up and down his back, there's obvious connotation there. that He's marionetting
1: her, yeah. He
0: is. It's almost as if he can't do it himself. He needs to have a barrier between Mm -hmm. the two of them. And so he is using her to sort of get that thrill. And so I do think that it's hard to not see this through a queer lens.
1: Yeah, it's literally what you said earlier. It's having sex without touching, right? Yeah, he's using Carrie exactly. as the proxy.
0: Exactly. Oh my gosh, I didn't even think about that. Yes, absolutely. Ugh,
1: I know, right? It's just it's such a fascinating film, despite on the surface, seeming like it's a relatively simple, you know, oh, it's a pair of male identical twins, a woman comes between them, and they just spiral out of control. Like, that is the very simple logline. But by virtue of the source material, the real life twins that provide us this kind of sensational end, I think what we end up getting is something that's really human and really fallible and really sad. But also, it's a gender treaties and how people who think that they're god can end up being revealed to be more mortal than even everyday people because they just don't understand how real people work like yeah just so much going on
0: yeah it really is and i as i was watching this particularly once we get into the more erotic aspects of it i kept thinking about the movie um double lover have you seen double lover i have i love double lover I do too, but I kept I kept thinking like, oh, Double Lover is definitely pulling from mm-hmm, from Cronenberg mm-hmm. in this in this part. I mean, I I think you could say that in terms of a lot of what happens in that movie. Yes. But as I was watching the way in which this movie plays with two twins that seem very interested in themselves as well as a, a woman character, that we can see how Double Lover is pulling from that. And so it's mm-hmm. it's fantastic to me to kind of go back and see the source material that I think a lot of movies that deal with twins have maybe pulled from.
1: Yeah. The other weird thing, and maybe we can sort of end our conversation here, but I wanted to raise it just because obviously we are looking at both Lynch and Cronenberg, but particularly on this rewatch, I really got a sense of the pathos that I felt when we were watching the elephant man.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely.
1: This idea of like medicine intersecting with a human specimen who is not regarded as human because they are anatomically different and clear, but also the kind of hubris of the doctor that removes him from his humanity and how you have to either find that or there's going to be tragedy and so on. Like, I don't think it's a one to one comparison, but it did feel like, oh, there's I don't know, something interesting there, particularly when we move into slightly more realism territory.
0: Yeah, I I definitely can agree with that. And I was I was thinking as you were talking about how I believe when we were discussing The Fly, we talked about how this was one of the, the connecting points between the two because Mel Brooks had produced both. yes. Yeah, produced Elephant Man and The Fly as well. And so it's interesting to have that on a more technical level. And this movie, you're right, does feel as if the two might be kind of crossing paths in terms of the way they, in which they are examining a more down-to-earth story that has less fantastical elements to it, but also mm-hmm. about the idea of bodies and mutations and aspects of, of science that, um, yeah, I, I definitely can see
1: that. Yeah. So, this is an interesting point to end. So, folks, this is going to be the end of our second season. Terry and I are going to take a brief hiatus as we, you know, try to get back ahead in terms of recording <laughs> and editing. But it's kind of amusing, Terry, because it's a bit of an end of an era, right? Like this is the final film that Cronenberg will make in the 80s. When he comes back, it is another adaptation, but we are leaving realism behind to go full on into fucking surrealism for Naked Lunch. Ooh, I,
0: I'm curious about Naked Lunch because my only understanding of the movie is the Simpsons joke where the kids walk out of the movie theater and say they could find two things wrong with that title (laughs) and so that's all i know about naked lunch
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i know it's based on the william s burroughs novel i know that it's got frankly what look like amazing fx in terms of the way that all of these creatures come to life but this is also going to be possibly the most queer text from cronenberg that we will ever watch
0: oh i'm excited
1: yeah big old gay shit
0: <laughs> my favorite <laughs> defiantly gay
1: <laughs> right yes but of course we'll we'll have another lynch in between that we'll come back to so we have put a cap in twin peaks for now so folks when we come back from our brief hiatus we will touch base with wild at heart what a wild change <laughs> <laughs> yes terry well done <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey, I'm tired.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's why we're taking a break. Yes.
0: (laughs) The Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad.